Hello, plantpreneurs, and welcome to Series 4 of the Plant-Based Business Podcast, brought to you by the team at Vivolution. I'm Eric Amundsen, your co-host and co-founder at Vivolution. And I'm Damien Clarkson. You will know me from previous seasons if you listened. I'm also going to be co-hosting the occasional episode in Season 4. I'm excited to welcome Eric to the podcast as we expand Vivolution and have reached listeners around the world. Over the last year, Vivolution has built the world's leading plant-based and cell ag network and investment marketplace. On the show each week, we explore what it takes to create and scale a plant-based business. We'll interview the best entrepreneurs and investors who are building solutions for a better and kinder world. Thanks for joining us. Tune in each week to be inspired by entrepreneurial stories, tips for fundraising for your business, state-of-the industry insights from leading investors, and success stories from Bevolution's new investment marketplace. Hey everyone, Eric here. Did you know that there's 1.3 billion tons of waste generated each year by the food industry globally? The Plant-Based Business Podcast is created with support from Hira, Europe's fastest-growing plant-based meat company. Rooted in activism and the desire to drive positive change, the company's credentialed R&D team, the Tech Rebels, is spearheading a new food frontier that prioritizes sustainability. Going beyond what's been technologically possible to date, Hero's new approach uses nutrient-dense materials from industry, byproduct, and non-utilized plant sources. So imagine... Instead of just focusing on proteins from a legume seed, Hira is finding ways to leverage the functionality of whole plants and their naturally occurring structures. Over the past year, Hira has quadrupled the size of its expert R&D team and will launch up to 10 new products this year. Follow Hira Foods, that's H-E-U-R-A, on LinkedIn to see how it's tackling the big, unsolved global food challenges using low-carbon footprint technologies. Now back to the show. Hello, and welcome to Series 4 of the Plant-Based Business Podcast. And today, I'm joined by my friend and co-founder of Heights, Dan Murray-Serta. How are you doing, Dan? I'm great, man. How are you? I'm good, yeah. Thanks for coming on the show. I just put it out there, I'm a big fan of Heights. You know, we've, we've known each other for a few years now, and it's been really great mm-hmm. to sort of, you know, watch Heights, Heights grow at the same time we're trying to grow companies. So, yeah. I'm going to kick it off with the same question I ask everyone who comes on the show. Do you think you were always destined to be an entrepreneur? Oh, no, not at all. I didn't want to be an entrepreneur. I was actively quite uh, deliberately not going to be an entrepreneur because my dad ran a business. So if we move away from lingo like entrepreneur, you know, he ran a business his whole life pretty much from 18 till when he died at 67. And he had terribly ill health as a result of it. Honestly, that lifestyle did not look attractive to me, you know, and he tried to get me to work in the business. He tried to encourage me to start my own business. and I was just not interested at all. I was a creative type who wanted to go really into two areas. I wanted to go into either screenwriting and film or advertising and media. And I did a bit of both before I ever started off as an entrepreneur. So, um, yeah, definitely not. So you weren't sort of having side hustles at school or selling anything? It was I did. I did do that. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I mean, that's the thing. I had that kind of instinct in me. I was selling Marvel trading cards. Um, you know, I that was like my one of my first forays. Oh, I did a bunch of that stuff for sure. Side hustles and, you know, 
I got a job when I was 13 as a football coach and was making like, you know, 50 pound a week and all this stuff. So I was always like really interested in working, working. I was always keen to work. I worked in my dad's warehouse when I was 14, which is probably illegal. And I learned how to <laughs> drive a forklift truck and was literally just packing, you know, thousands of garments essentially. But I've always enjoyed working. I don't really care what the work is. I'm not a very fussy person. I'm like really happy to get my hands dirty. I don't really find any work beneath me. Um, I'm useless really, like with DIY in general. Um, but you know, not for lack of some kind of trying. I, I quite enjoy just like learning or trying to do anything. I think that's why I like going to Burning Man. I like like literally going and like having to build a camp and build a tent and doing all of these things with my hands and come back and feel like I'm more energized than yeah, me doing that. I find more energizing than going on a beach holiday. Really come back right. from a beach holiday. I don't I don't really feel that re-energized and I do feel a bit knackered if I go somewhere like Burning Man or a camping holiday or something that's been like quite, you know, intense but challenging in a in a different way, I tend to come back and feel ten times more energized. Okay, a couple of questions related to that because I I spoke to Judy beforehand and I said, I'm interviewing Dan, you know, and she's like, oh, great. You know, it's just become a dad. I was like, yeah, he's just become a dad. And obviously you host Secret Leaders podcast on the UK's leading business podcast, Money in Heights. You do a whole bunch of other stuff, writing massive articles about NFTs. Like, are you addicted to work? Because I said to Judy, how does he do it? And she said, I think he must be addicted. Yeah. I mean, I'm, <laughs> it's interesting I'm curious, I'm ambitious. Am I addicted to work? Well, in a way, not really, because like I, the, I, like, it's very rare for me to work at night. Um, so, you know, it does happen. I mean, podcasting is a good example if I've got a US guest and whatever, yeah. I mean, it does happen. Uh, if I'm doing fundraising and I've got calls with the US, I'll let them happen in the evening. But generally speaking, you know, my lifestyle is I have dinner with my wife and we watch TV and hang out and chat at night. So it's not like I'm 24-7. This being said, I do I do work on weekends, um, not all weekend, but like I do if it needs to happen. And, you know, the article that you're talking about, if I have a mammoth article to write, I'll make that like my weekend project, you know, and I'll be like, I'll set aside like three or four hours to read and write. But, you know, for me, that's like, I'm just satisfying my curiosity. As you know, I often write articles that are either really helpful to other people or um, they satisfy like the way that I want to learn because the most proven way to learn anything is to test yourself or to write about it. So it's one thing to read, but it's another to turn it into the written word or try and conceptualize what you've learned to someone else by communicating it somehow. So I don't know. I wouldn't say I'm addicted, but I'd say I am. It's probably not healthy the depth of the well of my curiosity. The rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have big rabbit hole syndrome, big shiny new syndrome. Um, and my my biggest challenge really is I struggle to keep things surface level. Yeah. So once my interest is peaked, it can be quite a dangerous place for me to go because I'm quite happy to go and delve in but I, I tend to find that's really good for my business because usually the way that you have unlocks in your business anyway like completely obviously depending but you know i'm in a creative space i'm trying to you know do things and communicate them in new ways so investigating how other people are doing stuff with deep curiosity takes you down a new neural pathway anyway that 
takes you outside of the pattern that's repeating over and over and over again that you're already doing every single day that leads to a bit of lethargy and lack of, in my opinion anyway, like creative insight. So, you know, I find that these sort of tangential journeys that I go on tend to really help heights one way or another. <laughs> and that might just be me post-rationalizing it, right? I might just be excusing <laughs> the whole thing. And I, I accept that. But in my mind, that's what's going on. No, it's really interesting. And, uh, you know, I think you just don't know what's the rabbit hole. That's the problem. I find, you, you, how do you know if it's like an insightful pathway or like what's going to lead to some breakthrough in your business or, you know, <laughs> a brick wall? <laughs> Totally. And I I think that uh, in general, I'm a big believer in, in serendipity. Mm -hmm. So what does that really mean? It means that you have to, you know, get out the building or get on the Zoom or try and make some kind of serendipity happen in your life. But you never really know if that effort you put in or that person you met or any of these things is really worth your time. How can you know? You can't. No. But if you get yourself outside your comfort zone and create those serendipitous moments often enough, case in point, me coming to a Vivolution event, you know, there's, there's, there's so many of these things like where just going and saying yes and doing the thing, you know, can create this very random set of scenarios in your life that lead you down a certain path and help you become that person you want to be. And, you know, the, as you can tell when I listen to this, like the hardest focus, the hardest problem I have is sometimes focus, but always saying no. Yeah. You know, I kind of have a very positive energy where I want to do everything. And that can be exhausting. That must be hard because, you know, as an entrepreneur building in public, you must get so many questions because I'm often thinking, oh, I want to ask Dan about that. I'll ask Dan about that, mm. you know, but I'm kind of conscious of, your time and how much stuff you're going. I think, do you think that kind of motivates the things like writing the article about NFTs, like writing the the Mammoth article about how to build uh, a UK's number one business podcast? Do you think that's kind of almost there's a teacher in you trying to kind of, you know, share and also protect your time and that family time you kind of talked yeah, about as well? It, it's 90% the latter. Mm -hmm. um, anytime... I find myself getting asked the same question a hundred times, which does happen. Yeah, sure. Right. Link LinkedIn and Twitter DMs are wild for, can I just chat to you for 10 minutes? Can I just ask this question? Um, and 50 to 75% of those questions are the same ones. And that's when I tend to write an article. You know, those articles, which are mammoth, they take an entire day to write. They're not, yeah, you know, sure. they're like 15, they're like 15 to 20 minute reads. So, but the reason I do them so thoroughly is because I'm like, hey, here's all the questions I've ever been asked about this thing. Let's create a narrative. Let's create all the links, you know, just to go to an example of one. If you go to my, again, what I get asked all the time, can I ask you about crowdfunding? right? Because I did a really successful crowdfunding campaign. And it's like, well, no, because I just don't have time to answer everyone about crowdfunding. But I literally put the step by step process that we did what it took and all of the documents. So I created a spreadsheet of every single different thing that needed to be communicated. Um, you know, what needs to be communicated when, like how many weeks before live date, what platforms, what kind of message, what like things need to say, what trigger points, everything 
for me and my team at the time in planning. And then I just open sourced it. So it's like me verbally having a conversation with someone about how to crowdfund is nowhere near as helpful as that document is. So, you know, throughout, and you know, in the same way as like, how did I like raise money and get those investments? Well, I found a fuck ton of lists online of names of angel investors and people that I'd never heard of. And then I just spammed all of them until they said yes. And so I linked to like all of these lists that are publicly available that I've managed to find, you know, and this stuff is way more helpful for an entrepreneur. Like people think that they want to speak to you and maybe they do, but really they want you to help solve their problem. And you can't really do that with words. So and it's... actually this stuff is all point and click. It's so much more helpful. And so much of it is opinions and actually putting a hard like process down on paper. You know, I think, yeah, I agree. It can be much more helpful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is much more hard work, but it's so much more worthwhile. And now I just get to point everyone to it. Right. I'm like, Hey, use this. And if this isn't everything you were looking for, let me know. And I will add, like, if there's still questions that are unanswered, just what I do for everyone. If there are any questions that I haven't answered on here, let me know and I'll add them to the article and then I'll signpost them because you'll be helping someone else next time. So they're like living documents. Yeah, no, it's great. I'm a big fan. It saves me asking you a few more questions. So um, <laughs> I want to talk about failure. We'll talk about success and heights in a minute, you know, because um, you had a previous startup, right? Grabble, mm. is that correct? Yeah, mm -hmm. and um, mm -hmm. and it, it failed and you you... You had really hard things you had to do. You had to let people go and all the bad stuff you dread as an entrepreneur. Like, how did that influence what came next? That's a good question. So the painful point in that journey was when things were going really well, everything was great because exciting people want to join and things are fun and it's really exciting to win awards and be top of the app store and all of the stuff that we had. But when stuff is not going well, that's when it's really challenging. And we learned a really hard lesson on hiring people for values, which is really important. Like at the end of the day, we really, really struggled to keep the right energy in the company because we had talented people, but not the right values. And so when things were hard, people started to leave, people started to basically not want to like go down with the ship rather than we, ha we have a responsibility to help steer this ship. It's just like a very specific mindset. And so, you know, I went through like a bit of a painful post-mortem with my co-founder, Joel. Um, we did really interesting things. Like we went to business psychologists. We laid it all out on the table with each other, you know, criticized each other, told each other what they were good at, what they were bad at, where they failed, where I failed, like all of that stuff. Um, at the end of it, we ended up getting a, um, a list of values that were commonly shared values between us that we really felt were like integral to our character, but integral to whatever we would build next. And so before we ever had a new company or new what we were going to do, we had this list of values about what our company values were going to be. And from that, we then wrote interview questions based on the values for anyone that we would hire. And we didn't even look at that for like another year because we didn't hire anyone for another year because we didn't need to. But at the same time, like when we did, it was really fun that we'd already written our interview questions out. It was fun looking at them because we were like, oh, wow, it's so funny. I like, had no idea that we were going to even make this kind of business do these still fit and they really did i love that that's great and joel so joel was happy to work with you again you didn't scare him off well 
It's actually really interesting. It was almost the other way around where I almost self-selected myself out of the partnership because Joel is very, he's like the opposite to me on the sense that he is very focused, doesn't have shiny new syndrome, is very strategic and able to see like big picture and stick to it. And I'd felt a lot like I'd let him down a lot you know and then you know you work together as basically brothers um because you've been doing it for so long it's kind of a friendship that you don't want to really mess up by going again and actually like the really meta point that i made which i think is spot on and everyone should ask themselves this is how do we know if like the reason it didn't work is just because we didn't work definition of insanity right doing it again so like why the fuck would we do this together again we're better off just finding different business partners like i just don't think that makes sense and in the end, Joel actually made a counterpoint, which I, which really was the winning point, which is we have literally just been through therapy together on, on this and got everything out of our systems. And like the number one categorical fact between us is like we trust each other and you can't easily find that trust elsewhere. You can work on all of the, all the character flaws and personality traits and all those things you can work on them over time but you can't just like buy trust that doesn't turn up one day and like the fact that we trust each other and we trust that we're both really into personal development he was like those are perfect reasons why we should stay together and i was like that's actually a very good counter argument and i think since that conversation you know when anyone's ever asked me about co-founders what the most important thing is i've always said trust 100 percent that's and it, it kind of brings us on to heights, really, I think, because this, I guess, self-reflection, this process you've gone through, it's, you know, you're you're looking at your kind of well-being in the future and a big part of our well-being is our brain and brain care. And so you, eventually you, you and Joel go and create heights. So tell, tell everyone about it. Yeah, so I guess, you know, it was based on an insight, which is that people don't care for their brains. So we... Uh, grow up knowing a lot about caring for different parts of our bodies that decay skin care, hair care, oral care, nail care. You know, first thing your parents do when you know you basically offer potty is teach you to brush your teeth. Um, why? Because your teeth are going to decay over time. It's not like you brush them there and then and then they're fine. It's like you're caring for them over time, their bone, they're going to decay. Same thing with skincare. So, you know, the reason that I put skin like cream on my hands and my face is because I'm going to get wrinkles one day and I'd like that to be less and I want to look better for longer. And that's a vanity play, but it's also a health and well-being play. So all of these things, like we understand them to be true. And yet there is no brain care. There is no category where people say, actually, you know, what's inside your head, which is the greatest predictor of your happiness, your health, your longevity, your success. There's absolutely no one out there that's playing the game of trying to get you to look after that most important organ. And I think it's a really interesting distinction because this is almost like where we come into the conversation of the difference between your brain and your mind. So there was a lot of stuff out there that's focused on the mind. Um, you know, Calm being a good example, right? There's there's apps that help you meditate. Um, you know, there's things for productivity and focus. And I think a really good distinction between brains and phones. So if you imagine um, iPhone 14, I think it is, came out 
you know, they've got their new software on there and you've got to you download all of the new apps and, you know, the you've got gaming apps, which are like loads of fun. You've got your communication apps, you know, like, you know, so you can speak to each other. You've got your emails, you've got all of these things. It's a fantastic bit of software. But if you go to bed and you don't charge your phone, you wake up the next day and it's dead. And that's like all very well and good, but it's a waste of time. So that's kind of how I think about your brain and your mind. Your mind has all of these amazing tools to communicate, to play, to think, to do all this stuff. But your brain is an organ. And your organ is literally like a biological, as a biological fact, needs to be fed. It is your hungriest organ. It takes up 20% of your blood supply and energy every single day. Proportionally of all of your organs, it's the most intensive because it's a smaller organ for the amount of energy that it takes up. Um, and I went through this personal experience of really chronic anxiety and insomnia for six months where, you know, I felt absolutely awful, as you'd imagine, for a long, long, long time. And the sad truth for me was I um, I tried all of the psychological interventions. So I thought it was a problem with my mind. So I tried meditating. I tried, I went to a doctor who gave me sleeping pills. I tried therapy. I tried sleep therapy, all of these different things that were going on and nothing worked. And in the end, I went to see a friend who recommended that I go see a dietitian. And the dietitian, um, and this is obviously where I've had the conversation with you, the dietitian asked me about my lifestyle and I pointed out that I was a vegan. And she was like, right, this would actually explain quite a lot. What do you, what supplements do you take? And I'm like, well, I'd B12, because everyone tells me to take B12. And she's like, okay, well, this is obviously the problem. And so she explained that she sees an exponential amount of vegans and vegetarians. Um, but she was quick to point out, vegans, vegetarians, or anyone doing a specific diet. So she said, this stuff also happens when you're doing a caveman diet and you're not eating any plants, right? So it's not necessarily the fact that it's vegan or vegetarian. It's the fact that it's not a, like a complete varied diet it's a choice um and it has loads of positives but the downside negatives can be um you know a lack of key nutrients for your brain and the ones that she identified particularly would be vitamins and omega-3s so on a plant-based diet you if you're not supplementing this is it is nigh on impossible to get dha what this particular dietitian did a great job of explaining was hey vegan vegetarian chat aside um you've come into my clinic and you've told me that you've tried all the psychological interventions out there known to man, whereas actually a nutritional intervention at the same time would have not hurt. So she was like, it's very easy to diagnose me because you just told me that you've tried all the psychological things. It's most likely a biological thing. Sounds like you are extremely deficient in omega-3s and DHA omega-3. Your brain is 60% fat and 90% of that fat is a compound DHA. No. Now, most humans get that from fish, but fish get it from algae. So fish don't even synthesize their own DHA. So literally the most sustainable source of, of, of DHA is algae. It's just that even the best vegans with the best world in the world don't sit around eating plates of seaweed all day long. So it's just a rare thing to eat. And this is one of those things that you learn. Well, I didn't when going plant-based. I went plant-based before it was trendy, before you could go into the high street and find stuff that was vegan. I was there with so you, I understand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I was just eating like, you know, just so much fucking hummus and falafel, which it's amazing that I still love hummus and falafel as much <laughs> as I do, considering. But I I would end up eating not a very, very, very varied diet. And I wasn't eating algae because what the fuck am I going to do eating algae? So it's one of those things where I'm like, okay, I got a better education. 
didn't really think about how it might impact my mental health because all the conversations are around your physical health anyway. And I was feeling pretty good otherwise, like, you know, I'd lost weight and all of this stuff and I was feeling pretty lean and good, yeah. healthy. So it was a surprise that this was the conversation. And it was a really simple fix because she was like, just go get some supplements, but they have to be like really high quality. She's like, you can't go to Boots or Holland and Barrett. You have to go to Planet Organic or Whole Foods. And I was like, whoa, why are you the most bougie dietitian in the NHS? What's going on? But then she sort of just explained to me, it's like, you know, there's an enormous difference between the quality. So you have to get the expensive, high quality stuff from a reputable supplier. Anyway, she ended up recommending B vitamin complex, um, blueberry extract because I had insomnia and it's an antioxidant. It will clean up my glymphatic system of my brain. Didn't mean anything to me then, but it does now. Um, um, omega threes, DHA omega three. So I did exactly what she said. Um, started taking it. Uh, spent 120 quid on those three, uh, which was insane. But like, frankly, I'd spent a lot more on sleep therapy, and I within a week was sleeping like a baby. So I was kind of like, you know, mind blown, call her up to tell her thank you for saving my life and for all this amazing shit. And she was like, just quite exasperated, to be honest, because she was like, I've been saying this for so long. I say this to all the vegans and vegetarians that come into my clinic, um, you know, eat lifestyle choice, absolutely fine. Do what you want to do. That's fine. But just like be aware that you might be having a nutritional deficiency and you need a supplement. And yeah, she kind of just felt sorry for me, is the truth. Um, and so from that moment, I was just like fascinated that there was a credible, scientifically trained medical professional who knew what the answer to my problem was in a second that I'd spent six months on psychological interventions trying to cure. And actually, it was a nutritional deficiency um, that she said that this is like so 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 common i look at that alongside the fact that um there is a trend towards plant-based diets and yeah you know, at the end of the day like my attitude with plant-based diets in general was probably disgustingly liberal compared to others which is i don't personally believe that the way to save the planet is to convince everyone to go vegan because it ain't ever gonna happen i just believe that the way to do it is to convince all the meat eaters in the world to eat plant-based half of the week um well, that's where so we're like that's where we're getting to we're starting to yeah. yeah for sure but i think there's such a long period of people being like listen you either are vegan or you're not and it's like well if you speak like that to people then the answer will be they're not and then like it's game over so yeah. <laughs> you know it's really interesting it's really interesting seeing the trend now you're right yeah seeing the trend like moving towards people wanting to this is the other thing people wanting to have less meat and more plants in their diet is starting to happen and it's great Hey, Eric here. Thanks for listening. A quick word from our sponsor, Plant Belly. There are so many vegan grocery products out there nowadays, and it's amazing. But with all these options comes a lot of trial and error to find the best of the best. It happens to all of us. You buy something that ends up being a little disappointing. But what if you could have all the best vegan products put together in one place and shop them easily on your phone or from home? That's where plantbelly.com comes in. It's a new online vegan grocery store that delivers highly curated plant-based foods right to your door. Plant Belly has hands down the best selection of outstanding plant-based foods I've ever seen. 
I especially love that you can shop by ethos to find brands owned by women or BIPOC makers. I, for example, always search the latest seafood or deli products. It's a great selection. Plantbelly.com is a team of foodies, vegans, and passionate supporters of small batch makers. And they've handpicked only the tastiest plant-based eats to feature on plantbelly.com. You can use code VEVOLUTION to get 20% off your first order at plantbelly.com. That's V-E-V-O-L-U-T-I-O-N to get 20% off your first order when you visit plantbelly.com. Now back to the show. For me and Judy, we've always felt pretty good on a vegan diet. You know, it's been a long while. Mm. I've been vegan nearly eight years. You know, I've been taking heights for the last year and a half. I believe I feel sharper when I remember to take my heights. Sometimes I'm a couple of days and I'm like, oh, I'm feeling a bit gross. Oh. I mean, taking my heights, I do believe it has had a positive impact on me. And like, I'm not paid mm. by Dan to say this. This is just like my belief. I do also believe that people can make the choice and live a perfectly healthy, healthy, great life on a vegan diet without taking these supplements. I just believe that actually from my experience. De- definitely, definitely. It's just harder. You have to be really conscious. And I think it's just before I think I spoke to you, I probably bought my supplements from Hans and Barrett. I think the first time you yeah, met you... Which you'd have been happy with yeah. until I told you to look at the label. Exactly. And then we were like, whoa, what's going on? And like, and just explain to people so you can understand. I think is there over 30 different ingredients in a capsule heights. Is that right? Yeah, so it's 20. 20. 20 ingredients in heights, and um, but all in the most bioavailable form and all in the scientific dosages. And I think this is really important to say. So... In supplements, the minimum amount you can put in and get away with and make a marketing claim is what everyone does. And that is a big, long way off often from the scientific dosage. So just to give you one idea of one company, one brand, everyone knows, and it's, you know, very famous, uh, Seven Seas, who make, you know, the world's number one selling omega-3s, mm-hmm. whether you buy the cod liver oil or you buy them plant-based and their algae, irrelevant. Um they make the most omega-3s in the world and they have such a difference between the minimum and maximum. So the minimum you're allowed to put into a capsule and make a scientific claim like promotes a healthy heart, promotes a healthy brain, etc. That amount is 45 milligrams. The scientific amount is 250 milligrams. So seven C's obviously choose 45 milligrams. And what that means is their capsules are like, you know, between 10 and 15 pounds for a month supply. But you need to take their product for six days in a row to get one day's worth of what the scientific dosage is. So technically speaking, you know, you're buying a month's supply and getting five days worth of what science is telling you to do. And they are legally, firstly, they're legally allowed to do this. But secondly, they're also legally required to put this information on the pack. The thing is, no one knows the scientific dosages and these things, right? You have to research them. So there is an asterisk on the front of all of these supplements where they explain, they try and do their most murky way of explaining this stuff, right? But, you know, it's just an absolute scam. The whole thing is a scam that you can do that, but they can. And so they're a multi-billion dollar company and everyone buys their products, um, but they're getting scraps, essentially. And there's not really any reason why they should do that either at their size, and but, but it's their choice and that's how they do it. And that's the de facto way that all supplement companies work. There were just so many bizarre, bizarre ingredient choices. The other thing that a lot of supplements do. Okay, so 
to paint the picture, if you have a capsule and you're putting in the minimum amount, it means you have a lot of space left. And if you have a lot of space left, you need to fill it. Otherwise, it doesn't really work. So, and that's the same with a pill, right? That's how pills are bound together. Um, if that's your choice and you don't choose to fill the whole entire thing up with ingredients, you put in caking agents and synthetic fillers. That's how you do it. The craziest story that I have on this is that Vitabiotics, Well Woman, has titanium dioxide as one of the listed ingredients. The titanium, titanium dioxide is literally a toxic ingredient. So they've now had to recall like old Well Womans and stuff. But like this is what happens. You know, there are there are brands out there that we researched that are in America that had cyanide as a listed ingredient as one of their fillers. Like just chuck any old shit in that we possibly can to fill this stuff up and like, you know, make it in China, shove some shit in there and sell it to a consumer. It's not hard to make a supplement, but it is extremely hard to make one with only the best ingredients, no caking agents or synthetic fillers whatsoever, and just keep it completely clean, plant-based and everything. And, you know, sustainable. Like all of these things, you know, working with the right supply chains, you know, eliminates 95. We're about to get our B Corp certification. Congrats. Working with the right supply chains, you know, eliminates 95% of people you can work with. But then when we're doing the ingredient run, it's things like, you know, our omega-3 comes from algae farms in Nova Scotia. And our blueberry extract comes from a like farmer in Italy and stuff like that, which, you know, it we've really done the sourcing properly. Um and it's a massive project. And so I say to everyone, it is so easy to make a supplement and sell it in a bag. So easy. But it is exceptionally difficult to make the best product in the market. Um, there's a lot of faith that goes into this insight, right? So there's starting from the point of we want it to be vegan. We want it to be all of these things. We want it to be clean. We want it to be the best. The assumption is if you compound all of these decisions together, you have the best product in the market. And if you have the best product in the market, people will feel the best from it. That is a fucking hope. <laughs> it's what you hope happens in a year. Um, a year on, you know, we, uh, we're on Trustpilot. We're the number one rated supplement on Trustpilot. Yeah. Full stop, globally. You know, and that's as a startup. So it's great to see that, like, you know, common sense prevails, which is if you do choose to do the best by every single decision possible, that will compound into a better product that people are actually enjoying and feeling better from. But at the time of doing it, because no one's doing it, it feels like a massive gamble. I think this is actually an example where your um, obsession, let's say, with brain care led mm. to the creation of the business, right? Because Heights started life as a newsletter, if I'm correct yeah. in saying, you know, and this, yeah, is, yeah. this is just like you with going down an NFT, you know, writing an NFT article. It's the same full process. I can see it. You started writing about your experience and, and brain health and why isn't anyone talking about this? And mm. just tell people a little bit about like the success of the business so far, because I think it's astonishing what you've achieved in, you know, how long have you been operating? 18 months? Yeah, January 6, 2020. So like 18 months. Milestones, we've just gone past two million pounds of ARR. Um and we're coming up to two hundred K of MRR. Um it's coming up quickly, but slower than I'd like, obviously. Um <laughs> but I mean again, like because we're a subscription business, you know, we we you know, we use metrics like MRR, so it's, that's quite unusual, you know. We had our um in August, our first two hundred K month. Um, and that's you know, it's growing fast enough you know as you know i build in public so i talk about all this stuff publicly anyway on twitter and linkedin but you know that was our nine percent growth month when we're trying to target 20 so way 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 off target but 
still, it's positive growth, not no growth, I suppose. <laughs> it's, it's good growth. <laughs> it's good growth. Our plan is if we do a Series A, which we don't have to, but we might do. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we do a Series A, you know, we wouldn't want to raise any less than 10 million. And we wouldn't want to do that at any where under like a million dollars of ARR, so about 750K of sorry, of MRR. So we'd be looking at having at least 750K of monthly recurring revenue. And the main reason for that, by the way, is what I've learned in my experience, which is that you always want to be trying to optimize for the right valuation, the upper end of the right valuation you can without it being too high, that you fuck your whole business trajectory with the right terms. So what really matters to me is control, um, being able to be in the driving seat and driving force of the business and not giving up too much control at any one time for investors or people coming in and and taking too much power on the board or anything like that. Um, And the only way that you can do that is if your business performance, if if you can negotiate, what's your chip? And so when I was asking one of my friends who's a VC, uh, what the normal rates were, you know, realistically, he was like, you could raise a Series A now if you wanted to. Maybe not 10, but I could raise a Series A now, especially in this market. Mm-hmm. Um, but his attitude was, you could get a really strong Series A going at 350 to 500K of MRR. Then you'd be able to be in the driving seat. And as soon as I heard that, I was like, great, I'm going to target double that then. Because I just want to be able to pick who my investors are i want to be able to go if i want investors i want to be able to go out to everyone and everyone be like a yes and i'll be like great for the first time in my life i'll pick you you and you and the rest of you no thank you you can only do that if your business performance is exceptional yeah and i think like you know lucky in that you know we've definitely got another two years of runway as it stands and we're just about to launch in america so that's be that's happening in january january next year hiring a USGM and Sorry. setting up, you know, FDA and all that stuff. Um, so that we're locally set up in America. Um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of growth that can happen in the meantime there, but you've got to set these things up right. And so for me it's really important that um we're, you know, the right kind of ambitious. Um we don't just raise money for the sake of raising money. I'd actually rather have a slightly smaller business than raise the wrong kind of money. Oh yeah, hundred percent and in terms of term sheets, do you percent like so I get asked this quite a lot actually by founders like mm-hmm. threatened about term sheets and stuff like that. I said I, I've always we produce the term sheets, and give them to investors. Like I guess that's something you're kind of in favour of rather than the US model. I guess of like here are our terms if you want to work with us. This is what you got to sign on to. Do you guys produce your own term sheets and not sign in term sheets that VCs are putting in front of you? Yeah, okay. Well, I'll tell you very specifically, this time round in our round, this is a very, very um, unusual round mm-hmm. because I managed to negotiate um, a lead investor who will remain nameless. Mm-hmm. I managed to get them to buy out my VCs because yeah. I wasn't enjoying working with them. And I felt like they were really slowing us down and not adding a lot of value. So I managed to get them to buy them out. And anyone on the cap table that was like quite happy to have just basically doubled their money from the last round, just get out um, because we're looking for like the right ambitious people um, to join our board and basically 
yeah, we kind of, we dictated the terms. We said like, no press, no this, no that, no voting power on this. There's 2v1 on every decision. Um, and then the backup on that is, you know, there's a board observer. So there are some sensible backups on this. But we were really, really clear that the business we want to run has to be run by the founders and we're in the driving seat. So it's not easy to find investors like that, like that. but we had one customer who, you know, they're nine months into their journey with Heights, absolutely loves us, happens to be an incredible founder and CEO that's had an enormous, like, you know, billion dollar exit, multi-billion dollar exit, building a consumer brand and, you know, would do anything to invest in Heights. I mean, that's basically what they'd emailed me during the course of the year. They were like, you know, whenever you're doing another round, like I'm desperate to invest, like, let me know. I kind of invest. I emailed them when we were just sort of doing this this new round, like through Cedars and just a little invite only thing. We just raised a two million pound round at twenty million pound pre money, mm-hmm. um, and I uh, I emailed them being like, you know, this is totally invite only. We're only inviting like four or five people into this round at this point, but if you're interested, let me know. And I thought they were going to say like, yeah, cool. I'm in for fifty k, hundred k. Thanks for remembering. They were just like, how much do you want? <laughs> and at that point, I was like, well, it's not really about this is the thing I mean about like valuation. So like I didn't want it to be like silly, right? I don't want like so much fresh cash into the business that suddenly we've got an absurd valuation we can't grow into. So when I really thought about what I wanted, I wanted certain people out of my cap table because they were going to limit me actually, A, enjoying the business that I'm running, and B limit the ambition, I think, of how far we can go. So they personally ended up investing four million pounds, one angel, um, four million pounds into the business, but three million went into buying out other people, which, you know, I had to negotiate, but it was well worth it. So three million went to buying in out other people. One million went into the business fresh capital and one million came in from other investors. And that was our round. So it's a bit of an interesting round because it was like two million round, but really, you know, yeah. six million that went in. <laughs> That's really interesting. And, and what kind of things were these the investors you managed to negotiate out of the business what kind of things were they doing to slow your growth because i think this is a really valuable lesson you know for people you know i'm, I'm yeah. interested myself as you no know, someone growing yeah, a yeah. consumer consumer brand um yeah so um i won't i won't name the bad investors but i will name the good investors so we've got an investor called rianta rianta capital on our on our um well they're board observers so they come to all the board meetings um, and they are a VC, but they're like a family office VC. So yeah. they're Tom Singh, who is the founder of New Look. They're his fund. And there's a guy called Ben, who's the investment director, and he heads up all their deals. So it's him we deal with. And they they look at our data. When we go to a board meeting and we turn up, we're like, the numbers, how we're doing, how we're growing, et cetera. You know, Ben looks at it. He's like, guys, this is great. Like, this is where you should be thinking six to nine months in advance. How much money do you need? How can we move obstacles out your way? How can we move things forward? It's exactly what you want to hear from a VC. Um, otherwise, what the fuck is the point of having one on there? Um, <laughs> but the other investors were like, mm, I'm not so sure. Mm, I think you need to mitigate this risk. Mm, yeah, could, you know, what's the least amount of money you could raise, right? All of them noises are like the worst case scenario. What is the most minimum amount of thing you could do here to be safe? And basically felt a little bit like being managed by a bank manager. It's like we didn't go and get a bank loan that we're like risking paying back. You're supposed to be venture capitalists. You're supposed to want us to go hard or go home. And frankly, we're, we were having to like drag them through like the excitement. That's kind of what I mean. Like at the end of the day, we're an early stage company. 
you want to go into a board meeting, be excited, be challenged, hear ideas, think those ideas are great or terrible, discuss them and move on with your life. Not like have a conversation, hear that it might go back to a committee, wait on that committee. That's just like useless. So yeah, that's kind of what I mean. Oh, yeah. And as you death, know, death by committee, mate. You, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And as you know, because you you know me and you talk about all the stuff that I do, like I do move at a million miles an hour and I don't have the patience for that stuff. <laughs> I don't really have patience. People slow me down. Yeah, so we had to do boring. anything that seemed sensible, which is we've got to <laughs> got to get them off the cap table. And that is essentially what we did. And it was fantastic. And they were happy too. like they, you know, at the end of the day, um, made a bit of money. They were, yeah. yeah, they were they were able to get essentially three times return. It's not like venture capital returns, but like they've obviously got different things that they're interested in or they'd have given us more attention and kind of was like a very, you know, everyone wins, win, win, win. That's yeah, nice. I, and I like the decisiveness of it all. She could let us linger until you see series yeah. A and just, you know, then holds back your growth, it affects it, everything. Totally. Something else you did, and uh, you, you brought some advisors onto the business when you started out. Like, you know, you gave them really small, like, advisory shares, I think like 0.5%, right. this kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And I remember reading one of our invest the investor updates, and it was like, these people didn't work out. Like, I'm going to speak oh, yeah. to them. Like, what happened? Did Do you know what's hilarious? Do you know what's fucking hilarious? I did a dinner recently. Um... Uh, so I did a secret leaders dinner, yeah, guest dinner. Um, and do you know Azim Azar? Do you know who he is? He writes, writes a newsletter called The Exponential View and all this stuff. He's a customer of ours. He's a great guy. He's got a new book called Exponential. Anyway, he was at the dinner and I asked him if he wants to do like a talk at the beginning, promote his book, talk about it with the other guests and stuff. There's like 25 of us in their private dining room, et cetera, et cetera. And he gets up and I... I'd totally forgotten that I'd fired him as an advisor, basically, <laughs> because of like awkward conversations at the time, but whatever. Um, he got up and was like, um, Dan is one of, is I think the only person that's ever fired me. Um, and I was like, what's he doing? Oh my God. And he like literally went on this little rant. It was so funny. It was really like great tongue in cheek and stuff. And everyone was sort of giggling. And then someone else who was in the room, which is Justine Roberts, who's the founder of Bumpsnet, was like, mm. oh, he fired me too. <laughs> And it was just so funny because it was like, shit, I totally forgot I'd fired these people as advisors. Um, they're still talking they to you. Like, still having dinner yeah, with yeah. you. What? This is why they had that conversation. They literally sort of had that conversation openly, which is like, they just respected me more. As in, I made them advisors. I made it clear what I think that they should bring to the business on a basic level in a contract. Um, they didn't deliver. You know, another person I know is Rangan Chatterjee, yeah. who's like a really amazing doctor. He actually did a lot for us, like a lot. Um, I became really good friends with, and I'm still friends with. We chat quite often. Um, but he didn't fulfill his agreement in the way that he said he would, and we agreed to part ways. And so, you know, at the end of the day, I learned this so the hard way. I learned this from Grabble. I had so many fucking advisors that took equity and then never did anything. And I promised myself after that I wasn't going to do that. I was going to be really clear. If you're an advisor and you say you're going to do stuff, you do it. And by the way, I'm not a tyrant. I'm like, you just literally, this stuff is black and white. You said you do it. Are you going to do it? If you're not, we'll rip up the agreement and we'll just start again. Like, that's absolutely fine. So, yeah, with Azim, with Justine, with quite a few people, I'd had these advisor agreements and, and I cancelled all of them if they weren't working. And I've still got some of the advisors that were on exactly the same advisor agreement and they did what they said they do and they're happy advisors and, like, regardless, we're friends with all of them. Okay. They know what happens if they don't do their work now. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's fair enough, right? 
for sure. It's, that's I think it's so true. interesting that I, I think it's really interesting this stuff. But yeah, it's hard, right? Managing egos. But I think and I, I get asked all the time to be an advisor to companies. And I said no to everything but two things in the last two years because I want to be a good advisor. I don't want that to happen to me. And it should happen to me if I'm not doing a thing. And I've only got so much bandwidth. And I've literally just said yes to two things and that was it. What what companies are they? Uh, one's called Home Cooks, which is new, but I think they're the next Deliveroo. And I'm a ma- I'm massive fanboy customer. Like, I love their stuff. Great. Um, the idea... The guy's genius. Um, he, he, by the way, if you live in London, I can't remember. Yeah, London. North so he London, used to yeah. run Zing Zing. Do you know oh, Zing yeah, Zing? Yeah. Was like, yeah, so he was a founder of Zing Zing. I was like their biggest customer right? because a vegan. They got onto the vegan Chinese thing so early and it was amazing. So anyway, I was obsessed with Zing Zing and I used to get it all the time. He started a new business called Home Cooks and it's all local chefs, basically. So really great chefs in your local area, like batch cooking loads of food. And there's so many like vegan chefs around in my area and I love it. I think it's so great. Anyway, so that's that's that. And then the other one is Humanity, which is a longevity um, app, which basically tracks your rate of aging. Because I'm so interested in longevity. Um, and I've known the founders for so, so, so long. They actually just launched on the App Store yesterday. Um, but, you know, they're, in a, like, they're two outrageously accomplished founders. So, you know, that was quite easy for me to say yes. And things they want me to do are easy for me. And I'm, like, comfortable to do them. Yeah, I've had this. I've had this conversation with people who've asked my opinion. Don't do it unless they're really amazing. That you know they're going to do the work. So it's been amazing to have you on the podcast. Absolutely loved it. Just loads of information. I think everyone listening will get a lot from this. Where can people find you and connect with you and probably your journey sharing in public? Yeah, uh, please follow me mostly on Twitter at Dan Murray Sarter. Um, but I'm also on Instagram and LinkedIn. I mean, for whatever reason, I've got the largest audience on Instagram, but it's the one that I use the least. Um, I, I, yeah, so where, where you're most likely to hear my insights is on, on Twitter or LinkedIn. And Heights, where can people follow Heights? Please follow Heights. More importantly, that's at your Heights. Currently in trying to negotiate for Heights.com. But hey, until then, at your Heights and your Heights.com. Great. And um, look, thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. I hope to see you in real life soon. It's been been a while. Yeah, you too, man. Thanks so much. Hello, Eric here. And thanks for listening to this episode of the Plant-Based Business Podcast brought to you by us here at Vivolution. We're building the world's leading plant-based and set lag community and marketplace. Head on over to www.vevolution.com to join our marketplace of investors and startups building solutions for a brighter future. In 2021, more than 25 startups secured partial or full round funding on Vevolution. And if you enjoyed the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a positive review. And please consider sharing it on your preferred social media channels. It really helps more people discover the positive stories we're sharing from around the world. Please give us a shout and tag us when you tell others about the podcast. You can find us on all social media channels at Vivolution. And you can email us at hello at Vivolution.com if you want to reach out. We love hearing from our listeners. As always, thank you to Bridie Allison Child, who edits the podcast, and all of our guests and you, our listeners, for supporting the show. See you next time.